Well, happy 4th of July, everyone. It's so good to see you here starting this day of celebration uh, by celebrating the Lord who is the ultimate giver of freedom. But we are very grateful, aren't we, for this land in which we live. Cindy and I went to uh, the air show at the Narrows Airport yesterday, and it was awesome. F-18 Hornets and P-51 Mustang from World War II. When that F-35 went on his tail and straight into the air, it was so loud, it it shook. I felt it shaking inside of my body. Uh, it, was, it was truly awesome. The sound of freedom, baby. So that was good. That was good. I think uh, even more exciting for me was when uh, I drove past uh, the house of our English pastors, Ellis and Rachel White, and saw Old Glory flying outside of their house. I think, aha, <laughs> we have won them over. It's also sweet because Pastor Jeremy Vaccaro and his family are in town. Many of you will remember Jeremy. He left us nine years ago from uh, serving on our staff to be the senior pastor at First Press Fresno, and he is back uh, for a visit with his family, and so that was sweet. Ten years ago last week, Pastor Jeremy and I were standing in the parking lot of of Hope Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We were getting ready to go to our first ever EPC General Assembly. The elders of our church had decided that we were not going to stay in the denomination of which we were a part, and so we had to figure out what is going to be our new church home. And so Jeremy and I went to visit their General Assembly and figure out if this could be the place that might welcome us into their denomination. And by the end of the day, we knew we had found home. We had never been a part of a more Christ-centered prayerful assembly than we were that day. We also realized that in making this move, we were kind of starting over. We were going to be the new guys on the block, new pastor, new church in a new denomination. And so whatever influence we might have built up over the years, that was kind of all going to disappear. And we had to be ready to kind of become some nobodies in a wonderful denomination. And frankly, that was worth it to us. If we had to be nobodies in this new place, we were happy to do it. Turns out I was half right about that. The denomination has been a wonderful church home for us, but I was very wrong in the part we might end up playing in our new denomination. Last week, a bunch of your elders and pastors traveled back to Memphis for another general assembly, 10 years later, and we voted as a body to elect Chapel Hill elder Rosemary Lukens as the new moderator of our denomination. <clears throat> this, is the, this is the highest elected office in our denomination, and even more significantly, it is the first time a woman has ever been elected to that position. Honestly, I was so happy to be in the APC 10 years ago, I would, have, um, I would have been happy to just settle, to quietly be a part of that denomination that affirms everything that we hold so dear. But 10 years later, in the Lord's kindness, this little church in a little fished-out fishing village in the northwest corner of our country suddenly is playing an unprecedented role in, of leadership 
in this denomination. And I'm grateful and I'm humble. And if I dare be, I'm a little proud too of our sister Rosemary. And I know you are too. And I urge all of us to hold her up in your prayers because this is a, a, a singular time in the history of the church. And she's going to have the opportunity to lead us for a year uh, forward in doing that. So very exciting. We are sadly drawing to the end of our journey through the book of Philippians. This is like an old friend, and I always hate saying goodbye to her. But we have one more week. Next week we'll finish up. But uh, I want to remind you about this uh, book, which we call the letter to the Philippians. Paul was writing this letter from prison. He was uh, preparing for a trial, a trial that might end in his own execution. And despite that, this little book, the little four-chapter letter is the most joy-filled book in all of the Bible. And Paul has reminded us of that again and again and again. Even last week we saw it. But here's the other thing Paul makes clear. Sometimes you have to fight to hold on to your joy. Sometimes you have to fight to hold on to your joy. Last week my mom went down to visit my step, uh, my godmother in California. Uh, and she recently got bad news. She has gone into hospice she has only a few weeks left to live, and so my mom went down to visit her, and it was a hard time. It was a painful time of farewell. Many of you have gone through something like that, and so it's kind of a hard time to find joy in the midst of that kind of a situation, and yet at one moment, uh, my mom had a chance to sit down with this woman's daughter, sat down with her, talked with her, and prayed with her to recommit her life to Christ. So even in this pain, even in this heartache, there was an opportunity for joy. And that is what Paul wants to tell us again and again and again. Even in hard times, we can have joy, but sometimes you've got to fight for it, beloved. And, and the number one arena for that battle, for that fight, is right here. It's the old noggin. The six inches between your two ears has more to do with living a triumphant, joy-filled life than any other single thing. And Paul's going to remind us of that today because he's going to talk to us about our thought life, our thought life. So if you have your Bibles, take them out, open up your app, because I want you to remember where this passage is. It's one of my favorites, Philippians chapter 4. We are going to be reading verses 8 and 9. Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Listen to the word of the Lord. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. This passage and the chunk that it is a part of, Philippians 4, I mean, I remember this, put this in your brain, Philippians 4, 4, really all the way through 13. I think it is one of the most powerful, life-packed, practical passages of Scripture that you will find in the whole Bible. 
If I could persuade you to memorize even one little chunk of Scripture, this would be the first one I would send you to. It is my go-to Scripture passage in my own times. I cannot tell you how many times in my moments of anxiety or stress or fear I have recited this passage again and again and again. Hundreds of times, I'm sure. Hundreds of times. It's part of my prayer life. Last week we started in, in this passage with Pastor Ellis's wonderful message. And you recall that the beginning of this text goes, Rejoice in the Lord always. In case you didn't hear it the first time, again I say, rejoice. He goes on to say, you need to live lives of rejoicing. And he says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. He says, you got to pray. If you're going to rejoice, you want to live a life of joy, you got to learn to pray. Pray powerfully and pray with gratitude. Pray with thanksgiving. He's saying no matter what your situation, that's the way you're going to find your joy. But sometimes, dare I say this, prayer is not enough. Sometimes when we pray about the same thing over and over and over again, it can actually almost become counterproductive. Now, I want to be very careful about this. I don't know that we have that many people in this room who are praying too much. And I'm certainly, I'm not one of them. But I do know that if you have a hard, stressful, discouraging thing in your life, and all you do is pray about it, pray for God's deliverance from it, pray for endurance through it, it can actually become an unhealthy fixation. Paul would say that there is a part B to living the stress-free, joy-filled, anxiety-free life, no matter our circumstances. First, we pray. We pray with gratitude. That's what he said last week. So we absolutely start on our knees before the Lord in prayer. But then Paul would say this. Here's the second part. Here's part two. We manage our thought life. We manage our thought life. We choose the things that we will focus upon. We insist with ourselves that we will think about the good things in our lives. Listen to it one more time. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Surely... Paul is saying, surely no matter what you are facing in your life, surely there are some good things upon which you can focus. Good things that you can choose to preoccupy yourself with. If there is anything at all that is good, choose to think about that. And remember, again, this is from a guy who had a lot of bad stuff that he could have been focused on. He's sitting in prison. He feels like every other church but the Philippians have forgotten him. He's facing trial. He may be facing his own execution. It's not that he didn't have some negative stuff. He could have been a gloomy Gus. But it is this guy who is saying, I'm going to think about positive things in life. And I want you to think about the good things too. In 1952, there was a book that was written by a guy named Norman Vincent Peale. It became a million, million, million bestseller. Any of you remember what it was called? The Power of Positive Thinking. The Power of Positive Thinking. And the title of the book was his thesis. 
He said, the way a person thinks can define the way they live. If a person dwells on failures and disappointments, on the negative things of life, then the negative things in life will grow and multiply and dominate. But if a person's thoughts can be on blessings and accomplishments, things on, thinking on the good things, the positive things of life, then that life will be remarkable for its successes. He had many critics, many critics, including Christians, who poo-pooed this idea, this positive thinking stuff. They thought it was simplistic and shallow and formulaic and even unchristian. Some said it's not Christian. So, what do you think? Is there any value in training our minds to focus on the good things? Does it make any difference or not whether we think positive, healthy thoughts or all, is all of this positive imagery stuff a bunch of new age hooey? Well, isn't this what Paul is saying here? If we sum up Paul's thoughts in five words, I think he's saying, think about the good things. Think about the good things. How many times did you ever hear your mom say, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all? Well, I think there's a corollary to this, don't you? If you can't think any good, then don't think anything at all. Some of you are going to have some empty minds. The power of positive thinking. It wasn't Norman Vincent Peale's idea. It is God's idea. I wonder, I wonder how many here this morning are slaves of your negative, critical, cynical thought patterns that hold your minds captive. How many of you are here, here this morning are failing to find peace and joy and the abundant life that Jesus promised because you are so focused on the bad things of your life? Zig Ziglar, who was a Christian, by the way, once said, your attitude, not your aptitude, will determine your altitude. I think that's what Paul was saying here. What good things would happen if we took his advice? If we determined that we were going to mull only the good things. That we were not going to allow ourselves to stew in the juices of our negativity. That we were not going to allow ourselves to be sucked into stinking thinking. What difference would that make in our life? I want to tell you why thinking about good things is such good advice. First of all, it expels the negative things. It expels the negative things. There is an expulsive, not explosive, although it could be that too. There is an expulsive power in positive thinking that drives doubt and despair and hopelessness away. You cannot think about two things at the same time. You don't, there's no room for most, both kinds of thinking in one brain at the same time. We can't do it. You got to think of one thing or the other. And you, and I take it from me, from my experience, you do not break out of depression or discouragement by thinking about it. Thinking your way out of depression and discouragement only makes you more depressed and discouraged. I call it toilet bowling. You just go round and round, faster and faster, right down the hole. The only way out of depression and discouragement is to replace those thought patterns with new ones. To think of something different. Something nobler and better. And the Psalms are full of this kind of advice. 
The Psalms are full of examples of this this good soul self-talk. One of the best examples is David in in Psalm 103. He gives gives his soul a real talking to. Now notice this is not a prayer. This is David talking to his soul, telling his soul what he needs to do. Telling his soul to get into shape because he's misbehaving. Here's what he says. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's not not blessing the Lord. He's telling himself, this is what you got to do, soul. Bless the Lord. All that is within thee, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from destruction? Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies? Who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? And the answer to his question is the Lord God himself. Lord God Yahweh. He's who... When we rehearse the good things that God has done for us, positive things, thoughts of uh, the success moments and thanksgiving and optimism and encouragement, thoughts that are saying, listen, in Christ, I can do this. I'm going to make it. This isn't going to take me down. Those thoughts forcefully evict your stinking thinking. The moratorium on eviction has been lifted for your souls. Positive thoughts expel negative ones. That's the first reason we do it. Here's the second thing about thinking about good things. It puts your present circumstances in perspective. Which is exactly what you need in a time of crisis. Isn't it true that when you are hit with hard times, the bad of that moment can seem so overwhelming that suddenly your whole life is bad. It's not just that one thing is bad. Everything is bad. Everything is broken. What is in reality one setback in one situation on one day of your life suddenly becomes a life-destroying disaster. Very few things we experience are catastrophic. A few are, but not many. And thinking about the good things of our lives remind us that, yes, this is a bad thing I'm going through in this moment, But I have so many good things to be grateful for. And there are so many more good things that are about to come. And this too shall pass. Perspective. It gives us perspective. So thinking good things has an expulsive power. It drives the negative thoughts out. It gives us perspective. And finally and most importantly thinking about good things sharpens our faith in God. It reminds us that God has never let us down in the past. And that this present difficult circumstance is just one more opportunity for God to display His faithful, loving power. It's a chance for God to to give you a miracle. A chance for you to sit back and say, I have no idea how you're going to get me out of this, but I cannot wait to see how you do it. Think about the good things, Paul says. This is an act of will, beloved. It is a decision you make. It is a choice you make. I am going to choose, by God's grace, to think about the good things. So it is an act of your will, but before that, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. It is the work of the Spirit who's taking more and more control over our thought lives. Thought lives. Paul, at one point, talks about taking every thought captive for the sake of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful image. And this is what we are doing, taking every thought captive And I want to point out that this passage is actually sandwiched between two identical promises. 
In verse 7, we are told that the peace of God, the shalom of God, will guard our hearts. And verse 9, which I just read, ends with the promise that the God of peace will be with us. Think about that. Peace of God. The God of peace. And we're sandwiched right there in the middle of that. God is the one who's going to help us to focus on good as he does with every other spiritual gift he offers to us. This peace, this shalom, this contentedness, it comes from the focus on the good things of our life and that is a gift and it is also an evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in us who is making us more and more and more like Jesus every day. I love this passage. I breathe this passage. And my wife would tell you I need to. I am by nature one of the, I'm sorry to admit it, kind of the half glass, half full kind of guys, especially when I get in trouble or get in, in, in crisis. I, she says, you too easily go to the worst case scenarios. She says, I think that's how you prepare to deal with it. You think of the worst case scenarios, how you're going to, but she doesn't like it very much. Instead of, the, of living in positive and peaceful faith, I, I can quickly go to the dark side. And I really believe that there is power in this passage for every one of you like me. Especially those of us who are kind of addicted to a little negativism and we find ourselves preferring to focus on the bad stuff. I really do believe this passage is a prescription for greater joy, greater peace, greater perspective, greater hope, greater faith, greater life. And I almost didn't preach it this week. Because it has been a week of such incredible pain in our community. Such unimaginable pain. Two high school boys who've lost their lives tragically. Four others who were badly injured. Parents, siblings, friends reeling with this devastating loss. And honestly, I found myself afraid about three days ago that preaching this message in this moment would appear tone deaf. How can you think about good things when you truly are consumed with really, really bad stuff in this moment? But then I thought of this. What is our alternative? What is our alternative in in this moment? Shall we focus on our loss? Shall we meditate upon our pain? Shall we play over and over and over in our minds the unfairness and the wrongness of this terrible tragedy? It is easy and it is understandable for us to do that. It would probably even be natural. There is a grief and a mourning process that we need to engage. But could I remind you one more time that Paul himself was in a life and death situation. He expected to be executed. And even so, even in that situation... He said, I refuse to allow my thoughts to be taken hostage by dark and frightening possibilities. Instead, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, I'm going to sniff them out, and those are the things I'm going to focus my mind on. Even in the midst of genuine grief and mourning and loss and pain, there are some good things and pure things, and life-giving things, and healing things that need to be called to mind. In fact, it is precisely those memories of good times past and of God's faithfulness that may be the single most powerful gift in the process of healing up. 
and beginning to believe once again in the goodness of God's future. And so I stuck to my guns. And I preached this passage. Because whether you are facing unimaginable grief and loss, or whether you are wrestling with nagging pettiness that you know ought not to get your goat but does, Paul's words call all of us to a higher place. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Lord, I look out across the faces of my flock and I am aware that there are many who really are facing some hard times. Broken lives, broken marriages, uncertain financial futures. And it would be so easy to dismiss this or ignore it or just feel like this is way too hard. But God, I'm reminded again that Paul uttered these words not when life was good, but when life might be ending. And so, in your grace, Holy Spirit, would you work in the heart and the life of every person here, especially those of us who are negative Nellies. Would you help us to remember that we can think only one thing and to make that thing good. Would you remind us too that every good thing we have is a gift from you? All of these qualities of truth and honor and justice, purity and love and contentment, those are actually your gifts to us. And so, Lord, we ask that you give us more and that we receive them more and believe them more and speak them more and think them more and live them more. For we ask it through Christ our Lord. Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Our worship services are Sundays at 8.30, 10 o'clock, and 11.30 a.m. We'd love to meet you. To learn more about Chapel Hill and find out about upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. Thank you.